Hi, Katrina. Hi, Shane. Yeah, so this is uh, this is a little different. Uh, so for folks who listen regularly, they uh, might notice that this is uh, not Shane and Vicky. Vicky is unexpectedly away and shall be for a while, but recording must go on. So I have enlisted the help of one of our fearless producers, Katrina Jackson. Hi, Katrina. Hi, Shane. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to be, I'm just going to ask you a thing and we'll, we'll, we'll just, we'll see how it goes. See if Vicky would be proud of us or if she'll just never want to leave again. So question for you, how deep underground have you been like, at, like ever? I mean, I've been, I've been caving, I've been spelunking, but it's been a long time and I don't know how far down it was. Probably wasn't very far. Okay. Um, Are we talking in? like wild caving like when you're squeezing through small crevices and oh that is that that makes me cross claustrophobic a little bit yeah i haven't done it since i was like i i did a couple trips back in like girl scouts (laughs) so it's been a long time yeah i never so uh, for for me i i I don't have a good answer for this. I mean, I've been in big caves, monster caves. I've been in mammoth and kind of touristy. Mm-hmm. You stand up in caves. I do know I was in I was in Boy Scouts. Similarly, uh, my older brothers were as well, and they stopped going caving by the time I came around for no specific reason. But they tell me these stories of they would be going into caves that probably probably didn't have the right to be going into if I'm being like not not from a legal standpoint but they had no (laughs) business being in and yeah so there was one time where we were going through and one of us got stuck and had to just pull and hope for the best and I that is not an experience that I want or would relish and so in this case I'm happy that I didn't get to have that experience (laughs) yeah have you seen all those specials about the the Thailand cave rescue Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, hard, hard pass on my end. <laughs> right, that's not something I would want to experience. Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon, and I'm Vicky Thompson, and this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So, so why are we why are we talking about being underground or caving or or anything like that? I assume there is a a connection here. Yes. So, underground spaces connects to some of the research that our guest today talk, talks about. So, for this episode, I talked with Margaret Betcher, and she's an affiliate research professor for the University of New Hampshire, although she's actually located in Australia. And Margaret is a geophysicist, more specifically, a seismologist. Oh, so we're talking earthquakes. I, I've always been interested about how one does field work with earthquakes. I mean, they're, they're hard to or, or impossible to predict, right? Like the next big earthquake on the West Coast could be tomorrow. It could be 50 years or whatever. We just don't know, right? I mean, it's not like when an earthquake starts, you can send scientists to go study it since it's usually over within a few seconds. Yes, very true. But I did learn from this conversation that there are some types of earthquakes that actually are more predictable, and so they're therefore easier to study in person. So I do try to study relatively simple earthquakes where I can. I try to study earthquakes where I can constrain at least some aspects of where they start 
mines where we know a lot about the rock type and the temperature and the if there's damage in the fault zone, we can put a seismometer very close to those earthquakes. So we can get a pretty simple picture of what those earthquakes are like. And I also like to study earthquakes on oceanic transform faults because they're pretty simple. We know that they, we can, we can see that they occur very regularly. And we also know, again, about the types of rocks that they occur in. And we can see how long their faults are and we can calculate the thermal structure of the fault. So again, we know a lot of the conditions at which they occur. I've also studied, I've also done some laboratory experiments in my past to try to understand earthquake friction and to kind of generate some earthquakes in the lab. And again, we know a lot about those. We can really constrain the rocks that we're using and the temperature and the stresses that we're applying to create these earthquakes. So if we can reduce some of the unknowns, then we can really try to, to figure out what we do know about earthquakes. And we can apply what we know from these relatively simple situations to the more complex places on Earth, if, if we can. That, I mean, that's the ultimate goal. So how do you go about measuring all these earthquakes? Do you need to go out and, and get sensors in these locations? What does that look like? Yeah, so there's a global network of seismometers where people have put seismometers and and there's a lot of data sharing. So there's a global network where we can get information about earthquakes that are large. But if we're interested in looking at smaller earthquakes, then we need to really put down earthquakes put down seismometers very close to where they occur because the seismic shaking from those earthquakes won't travel nearly as far. So I've been involved in putting seismometers in different locations um, throughout the world. The first time I ever was involved in a seismic experiment was in China, and we kind of covered a wide region there to understand the structure of a volcano kind of on the border near North Korea. And since then, I've been involved in a number of other projects. For one, one place that I've studied earthquakes quite a bit is in South African gold mines. So this is a place where they're relatively simple. It's a relatively simple situation because you can look at an earthquake that occurs only a number of meters or hundreds of meters away because you can, you can go down into these mines and put seismometers down in them. And there are seismometers already down in those mines, so places that have lots of earthquakes. So the earthquakes in the mines, are are those from the mining, or is it from... In general, they, they are from the mining, because if you put a large hole in the ground, that really disturbs the stress field and um, the rocks want to collapse inward. And so that, that often causes a lot of seismicity. So some of the mines that I've worked in are some of the deepest in the world, about four kilometers deep. Yeah, it is amazing. One of your questions had to do with some favorite fieldwork story, and that was one that came to mind, was when we were doing a seismic experiment in one of these mines, and just getting down under the ground and being able to actually touch a fault in situ is, is really amazing. But the whole process of getting down there is, can be quite exciting. Um, so one thing, you, you go down in, the, in a shaft. So, there's, so it's sort of like an elevator, but it's this really big, it's a three-story 
cage, they call it. And it really is a lot like a cage. They just really shove people in. And one time I didn't even have my feet touching the ground anymore because they just keep shoving people in. And with a backpack on, I was sort of lifted up. And then you go start going down. And first, first you can feel the temperature getting colder as you get away from the Earth's atmosphere. And then it starts to get hotter and hotter as you get down more than three kilometers. Yeah. And then um, you get out and it's very hot and humid because of the ambient conditions. And that part of the earth would be full of water, but the mines have to continuously dewater it so that there's not, not as much water everywhere. And they also do condition the air to put more oxygen in and, and reduce the temperature. But still, it's about 85 degrees and 100% humidity. And then we like walk about a kilometer to our chosen site, carrying seismometers and car batteries to power the seismometers and install the, seism- the seismic station. And then it will record one of our experiments. Only We only recorded for about two weeks, but we had many, many earthquakes in that time period and had many magnitude twos. And those were the largest earthquakes that occurred two and a half about during that two-week time period. And we did feel an earthquake underground, which was pretty interesting. And it sounds like a big, big bang rather than, I didn't really feel too much shaking, but the the noise was the, the the main thing of interest. So I'm guessing by studying these kind of human-made smaller earthquakes that kind of know are going to be happening because of the mining activity that helps you basically understand kind of how shaking happens throughout certain types of rocks. Is that the idea there? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to study those earthquakes. One is um, trying to understand if large and small earthquakes really are the same because there are so many more small earthquakes. So if if they have the same sort of mechanism and just a different amount of energy release, then um, that's very helpful if in terms of understanding how earthquakes work in general. So the size of a, an earthquake in a mine is, is sort of right in between what we can make in a laboratory and um, what happens on a natural fault. So trying to kind of span that, that gap and trying to understand if we can use what we learn in the laboratory and directly apply it to the natural fault zone. So one way to do that is to fill in that gap with mining-sized earthquakes. Another thing that we want to try to understand is trying to understand if natural and human-induced earthquakes really have the same sort of mechanisms also. And so this is a place that we can look at that. As previously mentioned in the top of this episode, I just... I can't imagine going into an active gold mine that's up to four kilometers deep and experiencing a, one, doing that, and two, experiencing an earthquake, big or small, uh, while I'm down there. You you mentioned that you've been in mines before. Like, How does that ex- compare to any underground experiences you've had? Yeah, I've been to a, a few mines like on, on public tours. Um, I think I've been to a, a copper mine in Arizona, and there's an iron ore mine in northern Sweden. And I've also been to a a gold mine over in the Black Hills of South Dakota, but they turned that into a whole science laboratory. Like I think they're doing neutrino experiments and all sorts of things there. 
but yeah, g- getting back to earthquakes. Oh, right. Yes. Earthquake. Yes. That's, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so seismologists like Margaret go into mines because they know there's definitely going to be at least a little bit of shaking and seismic activity in there because we're literally doing or we're literally drilling holes into the crust. But I wondered, what was the other place she mentioned at the beginning where she likes to study earthquakes? That Something about oceanic transform faults? Yes, fault lines that are way out in the middle of the ocean. Much of my um, work has been on oceanic transform faults. So we mentioned what a transform fault was before, where one side of the plate boundary slides horizontally past the other side of the plate boundary. And oceanic transform faults are obviously in the ocean. And these are some of the most regular faults that we know of. Some of the ones that I've studied most are, are quite fast slipping. So they're the fastest slipping faults and they have very short seismic cycles. So the largest earthquake happens quite regularly. So that makes them kind of more, much more easy to study a, a full seismic cycle. Whereas a full seismic cycle on the San Andreas might be something around 100 years or more on an oceanic transform fault, it's about five years on the fastest slipping ones. So that's much more manageable in a seismologist's lifetime to study many cycles. So that's one reason that I'm very interested in these faults. We know that the largest earthquakes on these faults are quite small. So the largest earthquakes on some of the fastest slipping faults are only magnitude six. And they have these regular, fairly small earthquakes, magnitude six earthquakes that happen about every five years. And in 2008, we went out and had an experiment on these faults, on one of these faults called GOFAR transform fault. And we, from looking at the teleseismic record of the seismicity, we knew we expected, we knew that we expected another magnitude six to happen in a particular location pretty soon. And so we put our seismometers in that location and found an incredible. We had a one-year experiment and had an incredible data set where we found thousands and thousands of earthquakes preceding the magnitude 6, but not located in exactly the same spot, located right in an adjacent portion of the fault. And that portion of the fault never has large earthquakes. So we have parts of the fault that have very, have the magnitude 6s separated by parts that we call rupture barriers that don't have magnitude 6s. And the rupture barriers actually were the place of the, on the fault that has the most tiny little earthquakes. So it was kind of, it was surprising to see that there's this place that doesn't have big earthquakes, but it has the most little earthquakes. So these magnitude six earthquakes along these oceanic transform faults, are they noticeable at all from above the sea? Do they cause any sort of like waves, tsunamis, or, or effects on islands or anything? Not really. So it's actually, it's, I think these are the best places to, you can really root for the earthquakes to happen because they have no societal impact. Yeah. So there's, there, because there's no vertical offset on these faults, they just move horizontally. They don't cause any tsunamis. So, and because they're very far from land, they really don't affect people in any ways. So how did we first learn that these earthquakes were happening along these oceanic transform faults? 
Yeah, so, well, we can see them from the global set of seismometers. So you can see magnitude 6 earthquakes that happen anywhere on Earth. You can really see down to magnitude 5s or maybe 4.5s or even 4s in some places. But anywhere in the world that has a magnitude 5 or so earthquake, we'll be able to record it with the global set of seismometers. So we could see the pattern that there were these magnitude 6 earthquakes occurring And these faults had a few patches where these magnitude 6 earthquakes occurred, separated by patches where they don't occur. But we didn't realize that there were all these foreshocks in between in in these rupture barriers. So then we put in a proposal to try to go back to the same fault and see if we could do this again and really get into the details of why this might occur and see if we could capture the same thing again. So this new experiment that we did between 2019 and 2022, involving three cruises. So we had a two-year ocean bottom seismometer experiment along with rock dredging and mapping with the autonomous underwater vehicle Sentry, which also looked at the water column to identify whether there was any interesting signals coming from hydrothermal fluids coming out of the fault zone. And we also had an electrical conductivity study as part of the project, too. So all the vehicles you're putting underwater for, for studying the faults are autonomous, correct? You're not having any sort of crewed submarines or anything? Right. So we just had um, really one autonomous underwater vehicle, which, well, actually two, you're right, which was, the, was Sentry, which we were able to map in very high resolution and take photos of the fault zone and record about the near-water chemistry, water column properties as well. Okay, so you've got the autonomous vehicle taking the images, doing the mapping. Um, You mentioned rock dredging. What's that? Yeah, so that's really, um, you just put a bucket with kind of some scraping devices over, over the side of the ship and kind of drag it along in a particular track up a hill and scoop up some rocks. About how deep is the seafloor in in this area? Uh, About three and a half kilometers and much of the fault. All right. So that's like a bucket on a really long... It is. (laughs) A really long cable. Yes. Yes. And so that that can be a challenge. Some of the ships are hesitant to to do this because there can be pretty large tensions on on the cable. And so that can potentially be dangerous if it's going to snap or break. I mean, three and a half kilometers deep. That's that's gotta be that's gotta be a far way down. And and where? So I'm wondering where is the Gofar transform fault? So I read that it's about 1,500 kilometers west of the Galapagos Islands. Oh, okay. So out in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, I was just in Galapagos last year. I mean, that's really kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and I I, I can't even. Yeah, I can't even really picture that. And so their most recent series of cruises was from 2019 to 2022. I mean, I imagine, oh no, I remember, uh, I remember that I was thinking about the pandemic. I remember reading in the, there was a recent AGU EOS article in our, in our news magazine about how the pandemic actually affected their expedition. Yes. And so of course, Margaret talked about it with me as well in our interview. 
Well, so the pandemic ended up giving us some interesting challenges because we had put out these seismometers. So we dropped the, the seismometers over the side of the ship and left them there. We needed to collect them within 12 to 14 months of when we deployed them. And unfortunately, our location is very remote and it's um, quite, quite far from any, especially any U.S. port. So we were deemed a very high-risk experiment and it wasn't clear that we'd be able to go. But we did have this very valuable data. We knew the earthquake occurred and we wanted to be able to see all of the patterns of seismicity surrounding it. So... Uh, luckily, we were able to go. There were many different iterations of when we'd go or where we'd go, who would go on board. And in the end, uh, we just had one scientist, the chief scientist, um, John Collins, who is also the lead of the Ocean Bottom Instrument Center. For So he's he's really the ideal person to go on this cruise because we were picking up our 51 seismometers and redeploying them. Yeah, so you didn't end up actually going on these investigations. It was just the one lead scientist. How did you manage to stay involved, stay involved remotely? Yeah, so the the third cruise actually did have, I think, a reasonable size group of people, but it became a very large, large investigation with all the things that we had planned to do for the second cruise got bumped to the third cruise because by the time we had the third cruise, there was at least vaccines and um, things were loosening up a little bit with with the pandemic. So that third cruise had all of the sentry work. So that was the autonomous underwater vehicle that was mapping the fault zone. And they have a crew who who run that. And they usually work with with the scientists on board to plan the next dive each day just before it. And this is something that we decided was something we could do remotely. So a group of us, we had about six of us were were regulars who were meeting each day in my time. So we were spread around the world and in my time zone, it was 6 a.m. So every morning I'd get up at 6 a.m. and meet with everybody who was mostly in the U.S. And it was in their late, late afternoon and plan, plan the next dive. And we also had some dedicated students and postdocs on board who really worked with us very directly so that, so that we were able to make sure that things that we were thinking weren't out of line of what was going on on the ship. Like it's, you know, it's, it can be intense out at sea. Um, we had to make sure that everything that we were asking them was within um, what they were able to do and willing to do. And I would say that that was a really excellent experience for all of us who were involved because many of us who weren't able to go to sea were still able to really be involved in the in the field work remotely. Was the ship able to get pretty strong signal for for like internet and and connecting with you all? It's actually in a pretty tricky spot so the in terms of satellite coverage there just isn't the great satellite coverage so we didn't have any Zoom calls or any sort of video calling the ship. We just relied on emailing and transferring some data as files. Are there any approaches that you did in this expedition, these this series of expeditions that you think might be helpful for remote science in the future? 
Yeah, um, I think that it was really excellent and very inclusive to have such a large remote remote part. And especially now that you know everybody gets together remotely all the time, there's no, there really sh- shouldn't necessarily be a barrier to doing that for for much of this ki- kind of remote science. So yeah, having so I think one of the lessons learned is we really need to have dedicated people on the ship that are going to be helping us, helping the remote, whoever's working remotely on land needs to have partners on the ship that they can really work with. And everybody has to, we have to kind of come up with a communication streams ahead of time so that the communication between ship and shore is very smooth and um, because it's, it would be easy for that to kind of get out of hand and, and not be productive. What are some ways in general that you'd like to see field work be more accessible to a wider range of people? That's a really good question because there are quite a few barriers to field work for many types of people. It's hard for people who can't get away for a long time due to commitments that they might have with family or jobs. And it, it could certainly be challenging for people economically. Like sometimes you have to, you know, putting your regular life on hold to go away can be quite challenging. So one of the things that we did was hire a number of people and and pay them to go to see. So paying people rather than just relying on students and postdocs, that opens up the field for for more people to be involved and having remote, remote options also allows many more people to be involved. It's great that they learned some ways to participate in field work remotely and get more people in, involved, which makes me wonder, should we be calling it field work when it's out in the middle of the ocean? Or <laughs> we've also talked to scientists who don't or who do research from planes. I mean, which, again, that is not a field. I think maybe you're thinking into the word a little bit too much. Oh, man, me overthinking things. Who uh, who would have ever thought? Uh, but, <laughs> but regardless of the overthinking, getting more people involved, yes, is a very good thing. Well, how about now we transition to learning a bit more about Margaret? <laughs> you know, that's probably a good idea. How did you get into seismology? Well, I always really liked outdoors, and I also really liked math and physics, and putting them all together led me to geophysics, and I I took a geology class when I first got to college, and it was so interesting, so I, I kind of was hooked right then. Another thing that I would encourage anyone who has the opportunity is to do research experience for undergraduates, internships when they're at, in college. And I was lucky enough to get to do many of these. I did one in Alaska and one in Hawaii and one in Bermuda. And then I did another internship when I was in China. And those really kind of cemented my love of geophysics and traveling and, and seismology. And then going to graduate school, kind of had to decide if I wanted to study the structure of the earth with seismology or if I wanted to study earthquakes themselves, um, the source of size of a, of an earthquake. And I really was drawn to the societal impacts. So trying to understand earthquakes seemed like where I wanted to put my efforts just to try to 
help reduce seismic hazards and impacts, help reduce the seismic risks to society. Well, it sounds like you've pretty much always been kind of an outdoorsy person. Do you feel like you need to be to do what you do? I imagine there's probably not too many seismologists and geophysicists who are like, I'm an indoors person. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I mean, of course you can be an indoors person and you can be somebody who's, you know, much more interested in sitting in front of a computer and coding. You can be an excellent seismologist that way. But I like to think that you get a better overview of the whole process by being interested in going out into the field and seeing a fault and really getting a kind of a deep down sense of how powerful the earth is and how these faults work and the earthquakes that, you, that you're studying. So it's not necessary, but I think it is helpful. Margaret interned in a lot of cool places just in her undergraduate. I mean, did did you get a chance to go anywhere cool when, when you were in college like that? Certainly not as cool as, as Margaret. My only internships in undergrad were either at the school in Tucson or in Washington, D.C. with the Smithsonian. Um, so definitely nowhere overseas. I, I did do one, I did do one field trip, a geology class in undergrad where we've traveled. We, we went and saw different planetary analog sites between Tucson and San Diego. So that was kind of oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I didn't really, I loved my undergrad experience, especially the science part of it. But the most exotic place I went was rural Pennsylvania and a, just a different part from where I grew up. So that was good scientifically, but I wouldn't exactly say that it was, uh, let's say, the most exotic of places. <laughs> Well, uh, we can't or we haven't had quite those experiences, but we're happy that Margaret sat down to chat with us. And with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. I want to thank you, Katrina, for bringing this story to us. This episode was produced by Katrina with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Jay Steiner. We would love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. It is amazing how basically I can like turn into my own, like I, it's like, I'm just doing like face off with myself. Uh, <laughs> you put enough. You you put enough filler words in that aren't like an um. It's it works out okay.